Brought to you by Penguin. But to write a novel from the perspective of Melania would be to sort of spend your time and energy pondering what it's like <laughs> to be married to Donald Trump. Hello and welcome to the weekly Penguin podcast, the place where we look at how our guests harness their creativity by way of a handful of objects that have inspired them. I'm Nihal Arthanayaka, recording in my living room. As ever, please forgive us if our voices go a bit robotic and glitchy, especially since my guest today is in Minnesota in the United States of America. Although you will discover she sounds as though we're in the same studio together. Now, her debut novel, written when she was just 29, became a New York bestseller. And her work is featured in Book of the Year list by Time magazine. And she's interviewed a certain Michelle Obama. Now, as her new book, Rodham, is a fictional account of what would happen if Hillary hadn't married Bill Clinton, we decided to get Curtis Sittenfeld onto the show and ask her all about Rodham, but not just Rodham, of course, her career to date. Hi, Curtis. Hello. What an extraordinary name you have, which I know you had nothing to do with, so you can't take any credit for that, but an extraordinary name. My name is a, is a girl's name in Turkey, so Turkish people I meet are often very disappointed when they find out I'm a guy <laughs> with stubble. Uh, uh, you, I presume, have spent much of your life explaining, or certainly through kind of uh, high school, etc., explaining the name. Yeah, I would say that's that's accurate. So my real name is Elizabeth Curtis Sittenfeld. Uh, Curtis is my middle name. Anyone who knows me calls me Curtis. So is the... Elizabeth, the Sasha Fierce to your um, your Beyonce of Curtis. Then, unfortunately, no. I think I think I need to work on this. I I would like that's that's a, while in quarantine. I'm going to develop a really magnificent alter ego, but I, I, it hasn't happened quite yet. So, does it start with you wearing a white dress? This alter ego. Oh yeah, P- perhaps an extravagant perhaps. white dress. Perhaps, perhaps. Tell us about this white dress that uh, you may or may not be wearing as we speak. A few weeks into quarantine, I have two kids and like we decided to have a little family tea party. I mean, you know, but we find ourselves doing things that we we don't usually do under normal circumstances. We decided to dress up. And one of my kids said, like meaning in fancy clothes, and one of my kids said, oh, you should wear your wedding dress. And I thought to myself, oh, won't they be surprised if I really do? And so, so, you know, I hadn't put it on for 12 years. So I I, I put it on, um, you know, I, I came down and they, they were indeed surprised. And the other thing is, my children have barely ever seen me in a dress, period. And many people who've known me for years have never seen me in a dress. You know, it was a strapless dress. I got married in 2008. And so that's sort of like, it was almost hard to find a dress that wasn't. Many people who know me, who've known me for years, have never seen my shoulders. Like I usually really (laughs) kind of cover up. So anyway, so, so then, so, you know, of course, because it's the year 2020, you know, my husband took some pictures with his phone. So I put it on Twitter and it definitely, I would say it went 
kind of crazily viral, especially in the context of my life. And there were there were articles in, you know, <laughs> multiple countries. And there were some really funny headlines, including in the UK. I think there was one that said something like, you know, knackered mom comes up with a with fun idea to entertain children or something. And it, there was something kind of surreal about the whole thing. How have you changed during lockdown? And also, how have you been inspired to change when we come out of lockdown? Mm, Profound question. (laughs) So, I mean, I I think I'm one of those people who sort of metabolizes various changes slowly rather than quickly. I suspect you've heard other writers say that... It is less of a drastic change for a lot of writers than, yes, for, than for people yeah. and a lot of other, you know, like a lot of writers, I'll, I'll hear people kind of say, I've been I've been training for this for the last 15 years. Like the reality is, like, I think the anxiety and caution in the air and, you know, the the sort of incredibly sad, disturbing stories, especially in the U.S., about people mm. not having adequate health care or about um, health care workers not having adequate equipment. Like, it's it's there's sort of consciousness of everything that's that's going on that that gives my days a really different flavor or, just, or you know just obviously like feeling concerned about people more than my personal habits are so drastically different on any one day you mentioned 2008 has been an important year of course because you got married but it was also of course when American <laughs> Wife came out you managed to fit a lot in that year didn't you? I know it was a big busy year and American Wife is of course based on on Laura Bush what is it for you about writing alternative histories for people who are still with us? I know, I know. That's a a good question. I mean, well, so I think there's a few ways to answer that, but I think that I personally find it interesting to have a conversation where the reader has some sort of pre-existing opinions or ideas, and then I have some ideas. And I mean, and obviously it's kind of, it's maybe it's a one-sided conversation because then I just dump hundreds of pages of fiction on the on the reader's lap. But it's almost like me saying, "I know you think this set of things, but like, let me offer you some some alternative ideas, or let me let me offer you a different way of looking at the same person or the same situation." So then, this story about Hillary Rodham Clinton kind of happened because you wrote a short story called The Nominee. Yes. So in early 2016, before the presidential election in the U.S., um, some editors at Esquire reached out to me and said, would you be interested? They, they gave me the idea. They said, would you be interested in writing a story from Hillary's perspective on the eve of her accepting the Democratic presidential nomination. And and I actually was a little bit hesitant. Um, and then I thought, and partly I was hesitant because of the, the way the deadline fell, that it was almost like I would have to agree to it and then write it and then turn it in instead of writing it and assessing whether it was good enough to run. And so, but but I just thought I was intrigued enough that I decided to take a chance. And so, so I wrote that. And then it was 
after the election, like I think that alone, I don't think would have prompted me to write Rodham. But after the election, um, I sort of had this dawning realization that American kids who are aware of the election and who knew who Hillary was didn't necessarily know that Bill Clinton existed, let alone, you know, that he had been president and that there's all these all this sort of baggage associated with him. And it was the combination, I think, having written from Hillary's point of view and then thinking, wait, what if what if adults also didn't know that Bill and Hillary were like intimately connected in all ways? Like how how might that have changed the outcome of the election? Those two sort of situations or ideas combined. And that's, I think, what made me write Rodham. Let's get to your first object, uh, Curtis, and it's a birthday card. Tell us why you've picked this. <laughs> so, okay, so I, I'm like holding this in front of me. So in 2017, my husband's brother sent him a card and um, the card has a 1979 photo of Bill and Hillary on the cover and they're very recognizably themselves. I think they're wearing what I think would be thought of as very 1970s-ish clothing. Like it looks like she has a sort of velvet maroon and black um, blazer and a sort of like cla- clashing blouse underneath it. And then he has a kind of like beige and maroon and navy rugby. And they look, there's something simultaneously to me, there's something like very sweet and young and they look like themselves, but they also look, I think, much less polished than they than they do now um so, so in the inside the card says you've improved with age too happy birthday <laughs> like i kept this card on my desk the whole time I, well i'm trying to think it's in their their birthdays are in august so so i had been writing for a few months but um when the card came in the mail but i always i mean i it, it helps me remember like these are real people you know like they they have real feelings there are things that make them smile they're like goofy clothes that they own and I don't know I just I I like this picture a lot did you read uh, Hillary's memoir living history I did and I read the more recent one what happened also yes I did and not only did I read them there were times when I sat with them open on my lap while I wrote Rodham <laughs> Wow. Okay. Why? Because you're trying to create an alternative universe where this didn't happen. But then also, are you trying to make sure that aspects of who she is, her own family could recognise in Rodham? Like the book sort of um, weaves in and out of reality and fiction. And there are even, you know, like there's like a Supreme Court justice who is retiring, who has, it's Thurgood Marshall, who has a press conference. And there's real dialogue from his press conference in 1991 in the book, which I acknowledge in the back of the book. So it's not, it's not this total like flight of fancy, like it is Mm. very grounded in fact. And, And the book I think is sort of having a conversation with history. It's not just like saying, you know, perhaps she would have become an astronaut or something. Yeah. 
my faith, of course, in anyone saying this is a, a based on a true story has been shaken by Fargo. <laughs> uh, so because uh, they put that at the beginning of Fargo, and I'm like, really? Is it Fargo? <laughs> um, okay. Which is so, that's a do you know that's a, that takes place in Minnesota? It does take place in Minnesota, doesn't it? Yes, it is. It does take, and it's very strange. How much do you think we can ever really know about a person from? their memoirs, which sounds like an odd question, but of course they're editing it. You know, they are in control completely. So it's a it's a stylized version of their lives. I mean it's curated, right? For Right, right, right. Well so so I actually think that political memoirs or maybe any any memoirs or autobiographies get more criticism than they sometimes should you know people say like oh right that it's very it's a very um kind of like crafted or careful persona in these books but I'm always surprised by what they reveal that's like some of it's crafted and then and then I also think well anytime any of us leave the house which of course many of us hardly do these days but in in normal circumstances when any of us leave the house I mean it's almost you could say like well brushing your hair is a form of like crafting your persona or Mm. I I don't know it just it just seems like there's this weird idea like I, I think sometimes we're too cynical sometimes we're probably not cynical enough about politicians and sometimes we're too cynical as if something anything that comes out of their mouth or anything they write can't possibly be sincere electability and sincerity are just completely contradictory and at odds with each other and i don't think that's i think that's excessively cynical let's move on to your next book talking about how fascinating her life is because you did a is a horrible management term but a deep dive uh, into (laughs) her life uh, for this and um, your next object is a book Beyond the Best Interests of the Child. <laughs> okay, so this this book came out... Wait, I'm opening it. It came out in 1973, and it's a it's pretty short. It's only... It's like 110 pages, and it's by Joseph Goldstein, Anna Freud, who I think is... I think she's the daughter of... Freud, Freud, um, and Albert... Freud, Freud. Freud, Freud, Freud. You, you know him. I know the guy, the Sigmund guy. The guy, the guy that said um, that all us boys love our mums. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the third author is Albert J. Solnit. And in the acknowledgments, there's probably, I don't know, 50 people thanked. And in the second paragraph, the fourth name is Hillary Rodham. So it says, for critical comment on various drafts of the manuscript and one of the people. So so as a young law school student, Hillary was very focused. I will say, writing Rodham, I certainly came up against the limits of my own legal expertise, which which doesn't really exist. So it's like even there's a, there's an article Hillary wrote that was in like the Harvard Law Review in the 70s and and I read it and it was it was like literally, you know, the outer edge of what my brain could handle um but but it's this it's amazing to me because the book looks like it came out you know 40 years ago and it's just 
and I did read it. And I, and again, I, I sort of like there were, t- there were times when I thought I should get an honorary degree from Yale Law School, which I don't think anyone who has actually attended Yale Law School, which is one of the most competitive law schools to get into in, in the entire country. I don't think anyone would agree with, with my <laughs> assessment, but I was just so impressed with myself for, for trying to be very thorough. And again, it, it's sort of the same as the birthday card, like, you know, Hillary actually says in in her biography, Living History, she says something like, I wasn't born a senator. And I think it helps me remember these different versions of her. Like, she wasn't always Hillary Clinton. She wasn't always a super famous person. You know, she was, she was someone's, like, very junior assistant and, you know, back in the 70s. How did you avoid disappearing into a kind of black hole in the Hillary-verse as you are delving deeper and deeper into her world because there is no lack of comment and article and two memoirs on Hillary Clinton. Oh, yeah, and that's, I mean, that's barely scraping the surface. You're right. So that's a very good question. I mean, I think what I did was... Like there were some sort of prominent books or podcasts or that I felt like, okay, I need to read this or I need to listen to this and and kind of one thing will lead to another and and then and then there came a point when I started to feel like, okay, I think I've grasped the sort of contours of her life. Like if I was reading books and I thought, oh, I didn't know that, like I would kind of keep reading and go on to another one. But there did come a point when I thought, you know, like I could go on reading forever, but I think I have grasped the situation. Like I I wanted to be responsible in kind of like absorbing and collecting information. And and then I think that made me feel freedom to then make up what I wanted to make up. Let's go to your next object, which is a present shelf. (laughs) Sounds lovely. You got a present shelf. Wow. You too could have a present shelf. I need a present shelf if anyone cared about me enough to give me presents ever. My own kids don't do that. Well, we'll see how this interview goes. Maybe. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yes. See how good you make me look. Um, So in my office, I have a little shelf. So it's it's basically presents I've received. And it happens to be, there's one exception, but it's overwhelmingly from female writers. Like I was one time given... I lived in St. Louis, Missouri for 11 years. And before I moved, the library gave me this sort of like, you know, um, glass plaque, like a little award to kind of say like, uh, sort of like, thank you for being, you know, a good St. Louis, which was really lovely. And I've never gotten anything like that. So that's on my special shelf. And then everything else is presence from female writers, which raises the question, I mean, maybe I'm nicer to, to other women writers and so they give me presents or maybe women writers are more thoughtful. Um, but I have the, the specific object I have selected is Jennifer Weiner, um, who's, you know, a sort of mega best-selling novelist, gave me a paperweight that has, um, it's like a clear glass kind of half globe and it has a heart in it so it makes me I feel like I feel like it brings me sort of good writing energy to have like these you know these sort of um tangible objects that that kind of reflect my my friend's kindness do you 
think that Hillary will read this? Do you know people who know people who know her? Well, essentially, your guess is as good as mine. Like, do okay. you think Hillary will read this? <laughs> yes. You're, you do you're, you? Yeah. Why wouldn't she? This is what I think. I think she has been subject to so much scrutiny for so long that I think she's developed, you know, methods of tuning out attention um, that probably the rest of us have not developed. So so I think that there's that. People who are close to her might read it. Someone might summarize it. But I don't, given the sort of scope of her life, I don't think a novel being written, I mean, she's been Secretary of State. She's She's run for president. Like it's a novel being written about her doesn't occupy the same space that it might for, you know, again, like a sort of quote unquote regular person. <laughs> Let's go to your next object. A uh, a badge as we would call it over here <laughs> on this side of the Atlantic. But you have your own quaint name and way of describing it. Is, that, is this. that what you say? You say so so what I call a pin, you call a badge. Yes, we would call that a badge. Yeah. So this is this is what it is. I, we should all have one of these. It's it's a, a disembodied Margaret Atwood head. So it's a, it's a it's a tiny I'm trying to think how to describe it. It's like I would say it's about the size of a grape and it's made out of wood. And um, it's so it's it's sort of a, you know, brown and then there's kind of shading for her curly hair that's black or her features. But it's a very I mean, it's clearly taken from a photo or modeled on a photo because it's unmistakably if you know what Margaret Atwood looks like, it's it's unmistakably Margaret Atwood. So so in November 2017, I interviewed Margaret Atwood on stage in Cincinnati, Ohio, um, where I grew up for it was this there's an annual lecture for this library called the Mercantile Library. And the director of the library, who's become a friend of mine, is named John Faraday. And it was just, I mean, it was it was a really fun night. Like, it was Margaret Atwood delighted the, the people of Cincinnati. I was sort of, let's say she did not need me on stage <laughs> with her to, to ask questions. Like, she, she had people sort of eating out of her hand or whatever the expression is. Um, but anyway, to commemorate this event, I thought, oh, I, I, I was in... Um, um, my local independent bookstore, which is called Majors and Quinn in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I saw this, <laughs> this, this Margaret Atwood head. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, before I go to Cincinnati to do an event for Rodham, I will buy this, this pin or badge of Margaret Atwood's face. And then I will present it to my friend, John Faraday to, to celebrate our, or like, you know, <laughs> capture our, our November, 2017, um, big black tie, you know, fancy library event. Um, and now, of course, I'm not going to Cincinnati. You know, I'm not, I'm not flying. But so I, I think, well, I think to myself, should I put this in the mail or do I hold on to it as like a good luck charm until I go back home and, you know, see see my family and go to the Mercantile Library and see John Faraday. But I, for now, I'm holding on to it. I have not yet worn it, but that's probably the next, I mean, once you put on a wedding dress, I think that uh, a pin or badge of Margaret Atwood's <laughs> face is not far behind. I would be very interested to know how you'd regard it as a good luck charm considering the world we're living in at the moment. I, that's ch- I know, well, maybe maybe it's like she's like the, you know, the patron saint of, of quarantine or... <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, maybe she could be that. There's going to be a whole lot of patron saints of all kinds of things the, when the, we come the out the pa- other end of it. Uh, the, the patron saint of dystopia, Margaret Al. <laughs> Social dystopia, as, uh, so, yeah, as we call it right yeah, now. Yeah. Let's return to your fiction. Uh, there's a great moment early on in uh, Rodham where Hillary is uh, on one of her first dates with Bill and they discuss certain job prospects. And uh, let's hear an extract from that now. Apparently, I'm not supposed to say that I'm prepared to serve in just about any capacity because that would sound phony. But you know how you can tell if someone is truly thinking of running for president? He'll never admit it until he publicly announces. Anyone who goes around noodling over the idea is a lot less likely to do it than the fellow who holds his cards close to the vest. Does that mean you will or won't? In a faux ingenuous tone, Bill said, Running for president. What an interesting thought, Hillary. That's never occurred to me. More seriously, he added, There's something about you that makes me want to tell you everything. Do you think that's a good or bad idea? He was looking at me again with an expression that no one had ever looked at me with. It was intensely attentive, and it also was as if his words were simultaneously a joke and not a joke at all. That was Rodham, written by my guest Curtis Sittenfeld and read there by Carrington McDuffie. The audiobook is available now. There's a link in the programme notes of this episode. And while we're here, do remember to rate, comment and subscribe to the Penguin Podcast and our weekly Penguin Podcast. You can also find us on your Alexa-enabled device. Okay, this is really interesting. And I know you've been, you're offered this all the time. And this is about Melania Trump. Right. And people are saying, why haven't you done this about her? And you've answered this a number of times. But does she become okay, from the start of of his presidency to now, has she changed in any way in your own mind, your own perception of her? Not really. <laughs> I'm not surprised <laughs> by that answer, to be fair. Uh, yeah, I mean I and the other thing, like I, um, again, I am a Democrat. I admire and am intrigued by Laura Bush. I admire and am intrigued by Hillary Clinton. I would not say I admire Melania Trump, and I would not say I'm intrigued by her. I, I mean, um, like it, it wouldn't seem strange to me if someone wants to write a book about her but i i don't think i'm that person <laughs> but of course i mean it's quite an intriguing well obviously it's not to you but i mean the relationship between the two of them well so interestingly or or, <laughs> or not so interestingly i mean donald trump does make a kind of cameo in rodham um you know which i even have some ambivalence about but to write a novel from the perspective of Melania would be to sort of spend your time and energy pondering what it's like <laughs> to be married to Donald Trump. <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay. You just don't want to disappear down that rabbit hole. Lastly, Curtis, what took you out of your comfort zone writing <laughs> Rodham? <laughs> 
Uh, I mean, okay, so I'll I'll sort of answer this a little bit indirectly. So the writer Jennifer Egan, years ago, I heard her say that she wouldn't want to start writing a novel that she knew from the outset she was capable of finishing or pulling off. And I feel like that's, which I totally understand. And I think that's how I felt with Rodham, where I felt like, you know, just even, even just like the nitty, like, like, you know, again, slight spoiler, like she ends up running for office or there's, you know, various political elections. And, and I thought, um, like, like there's a lot of like nitty gritty kind of granular aspects of running for office in the United States where I thought, okay, you know, what, what word does this person use or how does this person get from this event to this event? Or, you know, how much money is someone allowed to donate to a political campaign in the year, you know, 1991 or something? So, so there was a lot of factual stuff that I wanted to get right, even though it's fiction. Um, and then I also, you know, I wanted, she, she, I mean, every, everything you're saying in terms of like people have preconceived ideas of her. And I, I wanted to make my Hillary, I don't know, sort of able to withstand those preconceived ideas, but, but also to kind of expand on them. So I, I felt like I was challenging myself in more ways than not writing Rodham. Elizabeth Curtis Sittenfeld, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure to speak to you. It's been a pleasure to speak. And I'm thinking thinking on your present shelf, maybe I'll send you a a badge that's a disembodied head of me. So yes. and, then, and then you can wear it when when um you know when the opportunity arises you can wear it. But if not, you can just keep it as a good luck charm. Well my wife's American, so maybe I'll end up in Minnesota one day trying to I may go on a Fargo tour. Maybe there are bust Fargo tours. Please that, do, that do please do come on come on over. <laughs> Thanks Curtis. Thank you. Gin Patrol on the Purple Line by Deepa Anaparak. When a schoolboy goes missing, Jai decides to take the case. Obsessed with cop shows, he has no doubts about his crime-solving skills, even if he's only a boy. Investigating the most dangerous parts of his city, Jai begins to realise that this isn't a case of a missing child. It's a case of missing children. The boys knocked their foreheads against the wall and asked Mendel why he had to die. One of them whispered Mendel's real name into the wind, which was a secret known only to them, and a shadow stirred in the lane. The boys thought it was a cat or a flying fox, though there was a charge in the air, the metallic taste of electricity on their tongues, the flicker of a rainbow-coloured bolt of light, gone so soon they could have only imagined it. They were worn out from hunting bottles and light-headed from hunger. But the next day, Rooting through the trash on the floor of a train, each one of the three boys found a fifty-rupee note under different seat berths. They knew the money was a gift from Mendel's ghost, because the air around them rippled with the warm breath he exhaled, smelling of gold flake kings. He had come to them, because they had called him by his real name. Haunting and Magical, the audiobook edition of Jim Patrol on the Purple Line, is available to download now.